Father, you have permitted us in our corruption, in our sin, you've permitted us to know you and you've cleansed us and you are building into us your nature and we thank you for these amazing truths, this amazing transformation that you're taking us on. And as we now open your word and come to this song of songs, that you would teach us its melody, that its rhythms and tunes would get inside of our bodies and in stuck inside of our heads so that we can know the true love of you, the maker of all, for us, your handiwork. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are sitting down in the amphitheater of Jerusalem. And you're in the audience, and the crowd's beginning to gather. And as you wait, you're looking at the program. And on the front it says, the Song of Songs by Solomon. And you're struck by the title of it because here's a man who has written, well, this would be the 1,005th song. You've heard many of them. Many of them are echoed down the streets and in the pubs of Jerusalem if they had those things. And they are part of the fabric of the society. But this, he's never called one the Song of Songs. And you're looking at the program, and there you notice at the bottom it says, Warning! Sexual content. (laughs) And you chuckle to yourself because, I mean, here's the man who married 700 wives and kept 300 concubines. And you chuckle because you think, what can this man think is so grotesque that he hasn't been there before and you reflect on how we know this old king he's we know he's into sex i mean it's drawn his heart away from god look at the temple for the gods of egypt and of syria and they're all over our city solomon has been duped into this so you're not really sure what to expect but then The title on your program keeps on getting your attention. The Song of Songs. And everybody knows, there's no secret that the king is aging. He's he's near death. And you begin to wonder, as, as people begin to sit around you and the theater begins to fill up, you begin to get the sense that there's an energy and an anticipation that isn't quite exactly like the other songs you've seen performed. There's something about it. It's almost like this is his, his, his finale, his farewell, his last song. Then the curtain lifts. And there you see a young woman, center stage. And without introduction, without fanfare, without preamble, she begins to belt out a melodious song that is as passionate and erotic as it is sudden and she begins to sing let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth and then you recognize oh it's that kind of song (laughs) Solomon's finishing with a love song but as the song begins to soar you begin to question 
do I really know what kind of song is coming? Because there's something different about this one. It seems more earnest. It, it has a clarity that any of his other love songs didn't have. It has an innocence. And, and you begin, as you hear it, to sense there's a wisdom underlying the narrative of this song between this woman and this man who sing back and forth together like some sort of a duet. Maybe like a Jerusalem style of the Civil Wars or something. <laughs> And then you begin to hear in the song that it is full of the king's reflection and regret. I believe that as we come to the song of songs, that it is it's something like this. I don't know, of course, how they perform these in Israel. But I think that this is Solomon's final song. So this would be his 1005th song. According to 1 Kings 4, he wrote that many that's a busy amount of creativity. I don't know anyone who can write a thousand and five songs. Um, I believe this is his last song, and I believe that it's a song that when you think it's of Solomon, you're like, come on, can he really write anything romantic having 1,000 relationships? But if this is his last song, this would be a sort of reflection on the regrets and mistakes he made in his life. And so as he's reflecting on these regrets, he's now gaining a he's gaining a realization and a clarity about the true desire that has always been in his heart from the very beginning. When he pursued women and wealth and this magnificent kingdom, none of these were what he was actually yearning for, though he had assumed so. I think that here at the end of his life, in his final song, Solomon finally understood what he wanted. He wanted perfect intimacy and union with God. He wanted to be in the very holy of holies that he built when he put up the temple in Jerusalem. And this song is his invitation to all the people of God who would read his work, hear his work, down the ages to say, if you are one of God's children, this is my invitation to you for intimacy and communion. And we would add with Christ. Primarily, before we get into all the confusing things of this book, primarily, Christian, understand that the Song of Solomon exists to invite us into intimacy and communion with Jesus Christ. That is the bottom line. Now we can get into some of the other things. Like warning, this song contains sexual content and graphic nudity. It's good that it's not illustrated, but the language is very vivid. Um, some commentators run wild with the language of this book and full-on describe it like, wow, this is, this is pornography in the form of literature, in a way. It's... it's Intense. Um, you won't get it necessarily at first in an English reading, but when you understand the euphemisms ancient people used, you're like, that's what they're saying. That's wild. Um, in fact, the rabbis would teach that you had to be 30 years of age to read this book. Um, fortunately, when I read it in English, I, a lot of it goes right over my head. Okay, But you get that, though, there's something erotic about this. Um, in, in this song, characters get naked 
and gaze at each other's nakedness. That's just a thing that happens. And some people are scandalized that this exists in the Bible. How is this here? So it's kind of created quite a stir in the interpretation of this book. I, uh, this week of preparation, trying to get an overview of this book, I read, I dabbled in um, almost 10, I can't think of the number right now, but it's a little less than 10 different interpreters. And not one of them was saying the same thing about this book. Now, it's as wide as Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century and as current as James Hamilton, who is an excellent biblical theologian at this moment. Um, between this spectrum, none of them are saying the same thing. They're all saying that it's a book full of erotic sexual content. That is the one thing that's agreed upon. Now, how you read this, though, it kind of boils down to one of two. Everyone kind of falls into one of two camps. The first is that this is primarily a sexual book. It is about the, it's, a, it's an erotic love poem between a man and a woman, celebrating marriage in God's covenant. So in that way, it's a beautiful book. Um, other people take a different tack and say, this is not a sexual book, it's a spiritual book. That this love song is an allegory about the love between God and his people, or more specifically for us, Christ and the church. Now, this has been the primary way of reading the Song of Songs all the way until very current in the history of the church. It has always been seen as an allegory of our love with Christ. Um, even the Jews read it that way, and the Christians continue to, until somewhat recently. Uh, all the modern commentators I picked up, all without bashing it, basically silently bashed the idea that this is a spiritual book, that it's a spiritual allegory. They just dismissed it and went right into, come on, let's be honest. This is a sexual book. And the reason it's never been interpreted that way is because the people back then, meaning everyone before us, were embarrassed about sex. So they had to find another way to read it. I struggled in reading a lot of this. I struggled all week because I just felt like modern commentators were not wrong. The content's there, but they were a little arrogant, in my opinion. Um, and then thank you, Eugene Peterson, for his wonderful little chapter on this book. On this book, um, He basically said everything I was thinking but had no words for. He's like, Forget the modern scholars. They all have to come up with something new. That's their job. And um, and then Peterson basically said this. Um, the early, our forefathers did not allegorize this book because they were embarrassed about sex. That's not the fact at all. They allegorized this book because they were bold with God. Think about that for a second. You're taking a book about sex between a man and a woman, and then you are pushing that another level you're accepting it for what it is and then you're pushing it to the extreme of saying this is what the christian experiences with god that is boldness in our union with god you can't describe it more graphically than that and when he when when peterson wrote that i thought yes I think that's the piece. So here I'm presenting to you guys that this is a book of not either or. It's a book of two layers. On the surface, this is absolutely, undeniably a beautiful love poem between two that are getting married. They get married in the middle of the book. Um, it's, it's, it's love, and God has ordained sex, and it's good. It's part of his creation. But, but, 
to leave it there, like most modern scholars do, to leave it at just marriage and sex is to completely disenchant the world from what it is. Our God did not just leave us a material world and said, but I'm over here. He fills and infuses all things. In fact, we pray every week, right? Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are... Oh, yeah, you are here. Okay. Yeah, they're filled with your glory. It's seeping. It's dripping with the presence of God. And so the ineffable God, ineffable means you can't put words to describe him. The ineffable God has given us tangible symbols in the created world to, through them, get to know more about what he's like. Uh, Consider communion. This is one of these ways we do this. Bread and wine juice, the cup... They take us deeper than just, where did this bread come from? Oh, it's sourdough, or no, it's squaw. It's not that at all, right? It's that in these, we remember, and and in some way, Christ is present with us, right? He's letting us know, yes, I have broken myself for you, and I'm with you guys, yeah? Um, baptism, it's same thing. It's not just water. It's the cleansing of the soul. And so sex and marriage, it's not just ecstasy. It's not just learning to live with someone else or become someone else to live with them. It's also about two becoming one. And Paul said in Ephesians 5, this mystery refers to Christ and the church, Mm -hmm. that the two become one. Mm -hmm. My human nature and God's nature are merged into one. As Christ is one man and one God, he's the two together, we are being brought together as well. And that's the mystery, Paul says, is not that... um, not that the gospel mimics marriage, but it's that marriage mimics the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so he's given us tangible realities to see the largeness of our God. So we need to approach this book on two layers. Is it sexual? It is. Is it spiritual? That's the point. Because our union with God is like the union of a man and woman. In, you know, that's a very limited way to say it. Okay. Um, why would, um, why would, modern commentators want to throw away the spiritual aspect. Um, I just want to throw this out there. Um, uh, first is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. <laughs> we all know this because we see this every day in our culture. We know so much more than our forefathers. That is our assumption today. And it is unfortunately not, the church is not innocent here. Uh, a lot of people think we know better than um, the ones who are closest to Jesus. You know, like the, the way back ones, like sometimes I think they might know more than we do because they are in living memory of the apostles. That must say something. Um, chronological snobbery is one reason. Um, second is the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 80s. That hit our culture massively, the sexual liberty. Don't think that we as Christians were unaffected. It would seem to me that around this time and because of that time, the church became very self-aware of their thoughts on sex. Well, the culture's saying this and they're saying this about us, so we got to say something about sex. And so Song of Solomon becomes, yay, this is our apologetic, that Christians are not scared of sex. Well, not good to let culture drive the way we see the scriptures. Um, and then, um, yeah, we forget that God permeates all things. So all things mean more than just a physical reality. There's also spirituality behind it. So I think that's why we need to look at this as two layers. Um, okay, so I want to present... Um, oh, I, yeah, I'm ahead of myself in my notes. That always confuses me. So we read Ephesians 5, 
yeah, the marriage is between Christ and the church. Um, but here's another example of sex being a symbol of God and his people. Um, Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. Um, Hosea had said that when I make for them a covenant on that day with their beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Hosea is saying the day of trouble will be ended because God will remake a covenant with his people. And then he says this. God says, I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Do you know what that means? You shall know the Lord. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, it said, and Adam knew Eve and gave birth to Cain. You get what I'm saying? (laughs) This is what God's saying is, I will betroth you to me, and then there will be complete, perfect intimacy and union. That's how the Bible talks about our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So then we climax in Revelation 19, when we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where this is all going. And the Song of Songs is saying, come on, people. You know, you know where we're headed. Let's, let's get this marriage thing on. Let's get with Christ. Let's be one with him. Let's get to know him so we can celebrate in that great day. Okay. So one more time. Song of Songs is an invitation to intimacy and communion with Christ. So are you ready to go? Yes. That means If we're unified and having intimacy with Christ, that means we are being invited into, this book is inviting us into, nowhere else but the Holy of Holies. That was union and intimacy with Christ. The Day of Atonement, the one day when they could pull the veil back in the temple and the priests would go in. Atonement is often simplified as atonement. The oneness and communion is what happens when the Holy of Holies is accessible. And through Christ Jesus, we can enter the Holy of Holies. You remember the veil was torn on his death. So here is what actually even a non-Christian said about this book. A Jew. In the first century, this is the first years of the early church. Rabbi Avika, no, sorry, Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said this. This is wonderful. He said, no man in Israel ever disputed concerning the Song of Songs that it did not make the hands unclean for the whole world. And others, people were like, can we look at this sex and be defiled? He's like, oh, it's fine. So and this, this is why. He says, because the whole world, the whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. That is some high esteem for the Song of Songs. Then he says, for all the writings are holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. Uh, He was not alone. Gregory of Nyssa, he was one one of the major church fathers um, in the fourth century. And he said this. He, but he did a lot of sermons on the Song of Songs and died before he could finish it. But um, this is pulling from some of the sermons. He said, What is described in the Song of Songs is an account of a wedding. 
But what is intellectually discerned, and by intellectually he means through the heart, what is intellectually discerned is the human's soul mingling with the divine. So, let us come then within the holy of holies, that is the song of songs. What exciting words for a book that we kind of, it's sort of down there on the list of books that are important to us, isn't it? Yes. Okay. I will also contend that it's not just the rabbis that wanted the book read this way, nor was it our church fathers and Gregory of Nyssa, but it was the book's intention to be read this way as the Holy of Holies. Let's start with the title in verse 1. Actually, let's read the first four verses. That's all I'm going to cover tonight. And then I will go back and show you that the book, I think, is contending for this view. Um, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, here you have the woman speaking or singing. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is poured is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the chorus of onlookers say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Okay. That's how it begins. It's an introduction. Not a lot's happening here. We just see that the woman has a lot of yearning for the king, her beloved. Um, I believe that this is a preface. It's a preamble to what's coming. And for example, in verse 4, when she says, the king has brought me into his chambers, I think she's telling us where this story is going. I don't think she's in his chambers yet. The marriage ceremony is going to happen in chapters 3, 4, and 5, if I got the numbers right. Um, This is saying, in other words, look, I desire you, and this is where we're headed. And then the the people respond in verse 4, and then our our story proper begins in verse 5. And she's going to confess, I feel unlovable, is how it's going to start. So it's a story of how does she go from unlovable to being embraced by the king and brought into his chambers. It's good stuff. Okay, now... Why does the Song of Songs want us to see this as the Holy of Holies? Let's start with the title itself, the Song of Songs. Do you hear it? The Song of Songs means this is the the greatest song of all the songs. The Holy of Holies means this is the holiest place of all holy places. It's grammatically saying the same thing. Now, you might say, but that's a stretch to just assume that. You're right. It's totally a stretch. Except that the next word say, which is Solomon's. Now, Solomon, you need to remember, built the temple. He constructed the cubicle sphere, which became the Holy of Holies. He knows the temple inside and out. He knows these things. I contend that it is not accidental that he then calls this song in a grammatical pattern that echoes the Holy of Holies. This is like the Holy of Holies in the terms of songs. This is the holiest song. This song will take you into the perfect oneness and intimacy with God that only the Holy of Holies can provide. So for us who don't go inside behind the veil in his day, 
This is it. For us, this is what Christ is for us. The Holy of Holies. Um, I believe Solomon intends that play on words. Second, the author is Solomon. Um, that means, this is what I think some modern scholars forget. Um, the way Western education works is we're trained to isolate things and not have biases and just examine them as they are. But here's the problem. The text itself commands us to see this in a larger context. By saying which is Solomon's, we cannot isolate this song outside of Solomon's life. We cannot isolate this song outside of its place in Scripture. So in other words, some scholars will take the song and they will analyze the song. Like, here it is, let's take it out of scripture, and now let's just examine the words for what they are. Well, okay, if that's all you do, yep, you're going to see sex and sex only. But that's not where it's located. It's of Solomon, who's in a very specific place in the salvation story, and it's in scripture, which means we have to read it alongside the rest of scripture. Otherwise, we would have just been handed a little manual, the songs of Solomon, which have nothing to do with salvation history. <laughs> It's here, which means you have to interpret it in light of the larger story. So we cannot just say this is just a marriage song. Um, consider who Solomon is. He is the king of Jerusalem, the city of God. He is the son of David. David, whom God chose to bring the Messiah through his offspring. And he is the builder of of the temple in Jerusalem. Do you know what these three things connect to? Christ is the king of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Christ is the offspring of David. Christ is the builder of the new and better temple, which is made of living stones, Mm. you and I. Solomon is foreshadowing he's a type of christ he is in other words if we don't just say oh solomon that historical figure if we if we look at the book and say the song of songs or the holy of holies which is the king of jerusalem son of david builder of the temple this is christ's song too this is why we're being ushered into something significant and special um also this is solomon's third book We've studied the first two already, last summer after Easter. Do you remember? After Easter, we went right into... Yeah! We got Proverbs. 100 bucks for him. Not from me, though. Someone else give it to him. (laughs) Yeah, we went to Proverbs, and then we went to... Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, and then we went to... Oh, the right... Where are you, left side? I don't know where you guys are. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we did the... We looked at the wisdom books and the College of Christ... And how they progressed, right, in our education of wisdom. Um, what we didn't cover, because there wasn't time, was the fourth wisdom book, the Song of Songs. But what's unique is that this is Solomon's third. So you have Proverbs as first. Proverbs is an introduction to wisdom. It's saying, this is how you start life with God. Ecclesiastes is about enduring in wisdom. It's saying this is how you continue living with God despite all of the disappointments of this world. Remember what he said? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the Hebrew word for vanity is hevel, which is the name in English, Abel. You remember that Ecclesiastes then is a book which positions us right outside the gates of Eden. And it says, okay, we've lost it. We've lost Eden, we've lost paradise, we've lost intimacy with God. This is how we deal with the uncertainties and the incomprehensibility of life outside of Eden. It's a book of hope, 
This is how we deal with the reality of the world. Then his third book is the Song of Songs. So you've started in wisdom. You learn how to endure in wisdom. Now you know where wisdom leads. Straight to the Holy of Holies. Do you know what the first Holy of Holies was? It was the Garden of Eden. It was where God and man walked together and were perfectly one with intimacy. In other words, Song of Solomon is about bringing us back. The path of wisdom is about recognizing, yep, we're outside of Eden, but this is the way back to that place with God. And Song of Songs is the capstone. If you want to take this one more step, it's the same thing, just another analogy. Song of Solomon's Solomon's temple had three zones. You enter into the outer courts where all Jews can go to worship. Then you go to the holy place, the, 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 the building proper. It's inside. Only priests could go. Then you go to the holy of holies behind the veil. Only Yahweh goes there. And the high priest once a year, right? Degrees of holiness. Well, you've got Proverbs, which deals with the ordinary courts of life. You've got Ecclesiastes, which reminds us, yep, Everything is heaven. Everything's outside of Eden. So keep your eyes on the temple, on the holiness of God. And then the Song of Solomon is behind the veil. It's saying this is what the Christian life is really about. This is what we're really after. So we have to remember, as we read the Song of Solomon, it's the Song of Songs, Holy of Holies, which is Solomon's. We have to read it in its biblical structure. Okay? Um... Okay, third reason I think that the Song of Songs wants us to see this as our intimacy in the Holy of Holies with God is that it is, it is laced with garden imagery. Absolutely laced with garden imagery. We're not going to get into that tonight um, because you guys know how I can go along anyways. But if you read it on your own, you'll see there's tons of foliage, flowers, fragrances from gardens. In fact, the woman says, I am a garden locked. You don't have to use your imagination to imagine what that means. Um, it's, it's full of this garden imagery. And in fact, sometimes they talk about they're meeting up with each other underneath the tree and stuff. It's meant to make us think of the Garden of Eden. Um, the, this is what James Hamilton said. He's a fantastic um, writer for scripture today. Um, he says... The closest we get to being back in the Garden of Eden in the rest of the Bible is in the poetry of the Song of Songs. This is the closest we get back to Eden. Then he says, To read of the intimacy described in the Song of Songs is like entering the holy place where God walks in the cool of the day. So the garden imagery is intentional. And then fourth, um, this is connected, um, garden and nakedness. It's a book of nakedness. The characters get naked and they look at each other naked. And there is no shame. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then they realize they were naked. They hide when they hear God coming for intimacy and union. They hide behind the trees. They sow fig leaves to cover themselves up. And then God says, where were you? Uh, We were hiding because we were naked. And then God said, who told you you were naked? This was a reality that they weren't aware of. 
Um, some people believe they were clothed in glory and the glory fell. And the nakedness isn't really like, oh my goodness, I see your skin. It's the idea of suddenly you feel unprotected. In a world without connection with God, you feel vulnerable, you feel shame, and you feel like you have to hide before the terror of the majesty from which you have fallen. But in the Song of Songs, there's no shame, there's no hiding, there's no alienation, there's instead openness, and there's oneness. This nakedness, Karl Barth said, is basically, this whole song is a commentary on Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve were naked and didn't even know it. So this is clearly being, this is calling us back to the time when we were A-OK with God in one. And now, so we see why, the Song of Songs is an invitation to intimacy and union with Christ. Um, Okay, so... Christ is our entrance into the Holy of Holies. Christ is greater than the son of David. Remember he said, I am one greater than Solomon who's here. He is the son of David we've been looking for. Christ was raised in a garden. John chapter 20. The tomb in which Jesus was laid was in a garden. And so Christ was raised in a garden. Mary Magdalene is weeping and does not recognize him for she thinks he is the gardener. Mary then looks inside the tomb where Jesus had now conquered death and emerged from. And what she sees inside the tomb are two messengers, two angels. And John specifically says, one at the head and one at the foot where the body of Jesus had been lain. That is, my friends, the visible uh, structure of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was flanked, the blood was put on it, and it was flanked by an angel at the head and the foot. And she looks in, in a garden, and sees the Holy of Holies, where death should be, now union and completion in Christ exists. So all that to say, the larger story, the Bible, invites us in Christ to enter the Holy of Holies, to walk with God in the garden of the cool of the day, and to finally be naked and free before him. I know it's so awkward and cringe, but it's... It's, uh, it is wonderful. Um, here's how um, we can help you with the nakedness. By the way, um, Gregory of Nyssa's first words in his first sermon on the first verse um, was, uh, he calls the, to the people he's preaching to, he says, you who have cast off the old man and been clothed with Christ, come and hear this book. It's for those who are clothed in Christ. In other words, the Song of Songs cannot be entered. We cannot enter into the Holy of Holies if we remain covered with our fig leaves. Colossians 3 says that we've been raised with Christ, so we're to seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then he goes on to say, so cast off the old man. If you want to step into the Holy of Holies, you have to strip the things that you have layered yourself with to protect yourself. You have to be open and vulnerable before God. Standing before him as you are, no pretense, no faking, no pretending, no, I'm holy and I'm great. You come to him as you are, completely stripped, and Christ clothes us with his glory. That's what the Holy of Holies is about. We cannot enter into communion with God until we have taken off our costumes. So, 
told, yeah, that's, that's the only way to enter the Holy of Holies. Did you know the one day the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement? Do you know part of the ritual of going in? He had to remove his vestments. Now, God commanded no nudity because this side of Eden, nudity is shame. He, he said often that the way the altars were built, there couldn't be steps where the priest would step and woo, flash, you know? Like that was it's actually in the law. It's kind of funny um, because that's not for God's presence. So, but what the high priest says is he takes off the maximum amount of clothing before becoming naked. It says that he goes into the Holy of Holies just in his linen cloth. And then he puts the vestments back on when he comes out. This is the only way to enter is in true, genuine openness and intimacy and not hiding for God. God, I stand before you open and unafraid because I know you love me and I will let you do with my life and to my soul and with my heart what you wish. If you can't stand before God like that, you haven't yet gone into the Holy of Holies. Because it's only there. Perfect love casts out fear, First John 4 says. Standing before him like that is when you know his love. Um, so this is how we enter the Holy of Holies. It's how, in chapter 1, verse 4, this is how we get to the climax, entering the king's chambers. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Do you think that this woman is going to be in his chambers with her clothes on? That's not how she got in. <laughs> Just put it straight. That's not how it happened on your wedding night, right? It was through the intimacy and openness of being unrobed. And that is what the book is inviting us to, being unrobed with God. And that's how we know Christ perfectly. Okay, so to show this and hammer this home, let's bring this kind of to a landing. Um, I want us to examine, there's a progression in these first four verses, and that leads us to um, really what I think we need to understand as we go into the rest of this book, like practically understand. So um, notice that this same progression happens, this openness happens in the first four verses. It starts with the request of a kiss. All she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And it ends with her in the chambers of the king. But watch this. Okay, so chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Here we have third person. Him over there. Let him come over here and kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Then the last part of verse 2 says, your, what's happened? Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is poured, your name is oil poured out. Therefore the virgins love you. What's happened? We went from him to you. He's present. The request to be kissed has been answered by his presence. Then we have in verse 4, Draw me after you. Let us run. What just happened? Are you catching this gold here? Let him, he's here. You are wonderful, you're glorious, you're fragrance. And now, let us. You go from first person to second person to third person. And this is the, uh, this is the one. Like, I got those wrong. Sorry. Backward, right? Third, second, first. There you go. You got it. Um, yes, now they're one, us. There's no distinction. There's no distance. There is union. 
That's how our introduction shows us this is where the book is going. God may feel distant. God may feel like he's someone over there. But if we are willing to enter the Holy of Holies through Christ, we will feel us with God. God will become now us. Um, this is beautiful. So, um, the first verse, verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Even that is just dripping with amazing wording. Um, this is a uh, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. He, he was like, a, he was a 12th century monk who also wrote a ton of homilies, sermons on the Song of Songs, and he also died before he finished. So Lord, please don't take me before I finish. But, um, <laughs> but these are like Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. He, these are both considered like the highest sermons in the church history on the Song of Solomon. So, um, he said this about this verse, and this really caught me off guard. I, really did not see this coming. He said this, I am I am not so presumptuous as to want to be kissed with his mouth. My request is more humble, to be kissed with the kiss of his mouth. What in the world does he mean by that? Fortunately, he goes on and explains what he means, and it took me 17 times to read it and understand what exactly he's saying, because old people speak very weirdly. But um, not aged people, I mean, you know, centuries ago people. <laughs> Sometimes, well, you, you guys know what it, the youth speak strangely today, don't they? Yes. <laughs> um, what he means is that humanity in our human nature is not worthy to touch the divine nature on our own. And there's been isolation since our exile from Eden. There's no nakedness. There's no unity. There's no intimacy. There's alienation and exile. Our nakedness has been shame. What needed to happen to regain the humans, because we don't trust God. We hide from God. The way God needed to get us back to him was he had to, in his divine nature, step into the human nature. And it was only when God's nature united itself with the human nature that the human beings were willing to come to God. So put this in more specific language. It was only in Jesus Christ where the human nature and the divine nature become perfectly one in his two natures. It's only in Christ that the human race was able to say, wait, God does love us. God does want to claim us. God has given us a way to kiss him. What Clavaux was saying, Bernard was saying, is that it's the incarnation of Christ. It's the divine nature and the human nature in his incarnation being perfectly united that brought the two natures together. So Christ is the kiss. God's nature is the mouth. Human nature is the mouth. But Christ is the kiss. So let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Bernard was seeing that in here is the answer to how do these two estranged lovers come back? It's in the kiss of Christ. Not the kiss of Judas, mind you, but the kiss of Christ. This is what has brought the two mouths of God and humanity together. And this is why we can now go from let him kiss me to let us run to the king's chambers. By the way, chambers? Sounds an awful like the Holy of Holies, doesn't it? This is how it happens. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 that it was God's plan to unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and all things on earth. He's become the kiss between the two. Um, the union of Christ's divinity 
with Christ's humanity enables the human nature to mingle with God. As remember, Gregory of Nyssa said, this is a book about mingling with the divine. Um, this is how Hebrews put it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, sisters as well, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we can go into the holy holies, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Hebrews says we can go into the Holy of Holies today because Christ's flesh was torn, so the veil is torn. We have found a way in Christ for the mouth of God and the mouth of humanity to kiss. We can now go to the Holy of Holies. So, now to come back to Thomas. This is what I think Thomas was after on that night when the disciples said, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas is like, yeah, right. Thomas was not willing to settle for the report of others. Thomas wanted to press in to this new reality of the Holy of Holies. He wanted the kiss of Christ on his lips. He wanted the taste. Your love is better than wine. He wanted to smell the oils and the fragrant and the perfume. He wanted to touch Christ's body. And there's a lot of that in this book. Now, yes, I do think Thomas should have believed without seeing. I understand that. Jesus gently rebukes Thomas. Blessed are you who have not seen him believe, right? There is definitely that rebuke. So doubting Thomas earned his name because of that. But I think we're too hard on Thomas because... Okay, let's say he did believe disciples. I would. We need to admire the fact that he was not willing to rest there, but he wanted to handle the body of Christ. I will not believe until I touch the wounds and put my hand in his side. And Christ, here's the cool thing, is that when he appears, he honors Thomas's request. He didn't say, had you believed beforehand, I wouldn't let you, but nah, this is good enough. Distance, Thomas. Christ is fulfilling for us what the Song of Songs is inviting us to. He's allowing Thomas to handle the body, the skin, the flesh of Christ. So, um, Thomas wanted that tangible symbol that communicates the ineffable glory of God. He understood God was great, but he wanted to press in and hold it and own it. So we'll close with this. Cyril of Alexandria, 5th century. I always tell you when, because sometimes the older it sounds, the more like maybe that's what the apostles taught it sounds. You at least hope so. But he said this, that Christ visits us and appears to us all. All, but this is on his message on Thomas here. Christ visits us and appears to us all, both invisibly and also visibly. Invisibly as God, but also visibly in the body. He allows us to touch his holy flesh and gives us thereof. For through the grace of God, we are admitted to partake of the Holy Communion, receiving Christ into our hands. 
to the intent that we may firmly believe that he did in truth raise up the temple of his body. The Jews read this Song of Songs during Passover. Every Passover they read this. Why? To remember that Passover wasn't then. It's a reality every year and every day. Brothers and sisters, Thomas reminds us that the reality and power of Easter is not a once a Sunday thing. It's every time we gather in the flesh as a body, as God's bride before Christ, that the power of the resurrected Christ is among us. And he presents, according to Cyril of Alexandria, he presents himself to us to handle. Now, for you former Catholics, current Catholics, those who don't like the Catholic teaching of communion, I'm not saying, because as Protestants, we don't believe that this is literally his body, right? It's, it, it's, it's representative, it's symbolic. Um, but I do believe that this is not just bread that I bought at the grocery store. Um, I believe that through the bread, as we break it together, and we are gathered around the worship of Christ, that he is present in our partaking. Understood? Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense and not sounding scary to you. That <laughs> um, as we break one loaf and we take this together, there's something more, right? There's something more here than just a bunch of people in, a, in a, what's a, usually a schoolroom during the week. That almost makes it sound so disenchanted, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's something more than that going on right now because you're here. There's something that happens versus listening to sermons online when you're in the presence, right? Um, we, like Thomas, have been yearning. We want the kisses of your mouth. Here it is. This is a book about bodies and nakedness. And Christ says, I've given all of myself to you. Have it. You get to touch this. That's wild. That's intimacy. That's union. This is the Holy of Holies. And we get to do this every single week. What makes our songs different? What makes our hearing some guy speak to us different than school? What makes our songs different than a concert? What makes our prayers different than your prayers at home? What makes all of this matter? It's that we get to have communion, intimacy, union with the risen Christ in our midst. That's what makes this different. And I'm honored that people have, I shouldn't say honored, I'm I am, I am encouraged that we do this together, despite the world telling us you shouldn't be meeting together. <laughs> the COVID is scary, and none of this matters anymore because TED Talks will improve your life, and there's lots of other books for things. Like, we, we know there's something different, and here it is. So, you doubting Thomases, you determined Thomases, you Shulamite woman of the Song of Songs, you Solomons who need to get back from the wagon you fell off of, <laughs> Christ presents himself and says, touch me. Enter the Holy of Holies and have intimacy with me. I have seen your darkness. I have seen your nudity, and I'm not turned off. So, Father, you are our Lord and our God. Lead us into the intimacy and union of Christ. Lead us into the Holy of Holies and let us live there. Amen.